Good morning, everyone. We have a Bible. Second Samuel 6. It comes right after 1 Samuel. Originally, Samuel was one book, one long book. It was divided into two books because they couldn't fit it on one scroll. The book is the, tells the story of Israel receiving a king. Um, the book is named after Samuel, the prophet who opens up the book of 1 Samuel. And the first king of Israel was Saul, and Samuel was in, in charge of appointing Saul. Saul was not that good of a king. He had major character flaws and didn't walk in repentance. The second king that Israel had, which, which was Israel's best king, King David. David's king story starts in 2 Samuel. When David became the king of Israel, the first thing he did was establish Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. He moved into Jerusalem and made the, Jerusalem the capital of Israel and named it Zion. When he did that, there was something missing. And it was the Ark of God. And he wanted to bring the Ark of God into the new capital city of Jerusalem that was the capital city of the kingdom of Israel and he was installed king. This is the story that we get in chapter six of 2 Samuel. It's David going to get the Ark of God to try to bring it into Jerusalem. So that's the story in 2 Samuel six. Let me read this chapter to you. It's such a great and strange chapter. And I'll pray. Sorry if I sound a little nasally. It's because I am. Um, and I'm on cold medicine, so this might get really fun. So, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Baalah in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark, they set the ark of God on a new cart, and they brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets and harps and lyres and tambourines and rattles and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died right there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day, the place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six, six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with sounds and the sound of trump shouts and the sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal the daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him 
in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of the Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. When David returned to his home to bless his household, Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, hmm, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls and his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord, who chose me rather than your, than, uh, who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in high honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. (laughs) The Bible. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord, as we get into this text... Um, I pray that it would get into us, that we would as a church be transformed, that God, your holiness, that your otherness um, would be held in high honor in this church, that when we gather as a church and we walk our city, we would be aware of your presence and your passion for us, God, and your holiness, Lord. You are God and there is no other, Lord. Be worshiped here today rightly in spirit and truth. Jesus, you said that you're, the Father is looking for those to seek him in spirit and truth. So Lord, we pray that you would find a multitude of people, a lot of people here, that are genuinely seeking to worship God. And for those that are genuinely seeking to worship God and have not found you, Lord, I pray you would make yourself known. And today, they would sense and they would get this, um, this realization that you've been looking for them all along and would find their home in you. Pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we as a church at, at Reality, we love to sing. We love to worship um, through song at this church. It's been part of our history as Reality when we started in Santa Barbara some 15 years, almost 15 years ago now. It's a part of our history at Reality San Francisco being five years old now. And this before us is a story, this story is a story of worship. It is a great story. It is a strange story. It's a story of God killing someone at a worship conference. It's so strange. They're worshiping, and I imagine like a picture of like a New Orleans dance troupe, and everyone dancing, playing the trumpets, everybody dancing, and then God zaps someone, and and David's like, oh man, come on. Like we're at a worship conference, this guy's worshiping, we're all worshiping, and then you kill someone, God. And it, it just doesn't make sense. And then the story ends with the wife mocking and yelling at her husband for worshiping God with all his might. It's like the Real Housewives of Jerusalem or something. Like, what are you doing? I saw, and, and the linen ephod would have been like this undergarment, okay? Literally like an undergarment. So David was out there dancing like in his, his underwear, okay? And McCall, his wife was like ashamed of him. How dare you? At the center of the story, you have David, a person who really wanted to worship God rightly, He had this sense and knowledge from a young age of who God was, and he responded to God through song. Even ever since he was a young boy, he responded to God through song. 
We have a, a collection of his songs in the middle of our Bible called the Book of Psalms. In the New Testament, we read that David, when it was all said and done, flaws and all because he messed up royally in 2 Samuel. Flaws and all, David, at the end of everything, was a man after God's own heart. Now, what is proper worship? What do we see in this text that proper worship is and isn't? What's the danger of worship? And how do we get a sense of its nature? What are we to do? And why did God kill someone? It sounds really bad. So first, let's start here. Let's start about this ark, the ark of God. Remember, that's what David was trying to move in. He's moving this ark. Uzzah touches the ark and then is dead. Israel, the ark of God was Israel's central symbol of his sovereign and saving presence. It was like showing the people of Israel that God is with us. It was the center to their worship and the center of all God's activity in Israel. You can say that the ark was a traveling monument of God's faithfulness. The ark was a traveling monument of God's faithfulness. The ark of God was a simple box. It was three and three quarter feet by two and one quarter by two and a quarter. Made out of acacia wood and painted with gold. On the top were two cherubim on either end. Here's a picture from Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. (laughs) Remember that? They're looking for the ark. That's the ark. That's as it's depicted in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Here's a picture from an Old Testament scholar. It looks something about the same thing. There were three things in the ark, and it was evidence that God was working among them. There were the uh, tablets, the Ten Commandments were in the ark, kept in that that ark. Uh, A jar of manna, a jar that had manna, how God uh, provided for them in the desert as they wandered for 40 years. Aaron's rod, who was the priest, um, it budded. Um, uh, There was a huge uh, disagreement on who was going to lead the people, and God obviously wanted the priest to lead the people. And um, Aaron, they all put their rod in, uh, in the tabernacle, and in the morning, and they had to write their names on their rod, and Aaron took out his rod, and it budded. And Aaron was clearly the choice. What these symbols were, what these things were in this ark here, were, were proof to them, historical fact that God had commanded them, that God had provided for them manna, that God had saved them, Aaron's rod that budded. The ark itself and the items inside pointed to hard historical fact of God's revealed character that led Israel into worship. This here was a physical hard evidence that God had revealed himself to Israel, that God was in their midst and that God was to be worshiped. See, there are two rhythmic parts of biblical worship. There are two parts and it's rhythm. The first part is divine revelation. The second part is human response. So God reveals himself, divine revelation, and then we we respond to God. On a a practical note, this is why we do at, at, at this church, this is why we do the bulk of our musical singing, communion, prayer time, responding to God on our knees at the end of the service. We, we, we hope that as we teach, as we open up the first set of worship, as we open up the scriptures, that God is revealed to us, divine revelation. And now, the most important thing that we do is respond to that God. We worship. Worship is divine revelation, God showing himself to us, and then he, us responding to God. So we respond to the table, communion. We respond to the word that was preached. We respond to God. This is the rhythm of divine worship. See, the first part of worship is divine revelation, who God is. And this is what the ark pointed to. This was hard historical fact of how God had revealed himself to Israel. And then what's good and right and required is right response, us, Israel and us, worshiping God. So what about Yuzah? 
Why did God kill him? Well, if you notice, I kind of enunciated the word a little bit more when I said it a couple times. But did you notice that thing about the new cart? The very beginning, um, verse 3. They set the ark of God on a new cart. And then Abinadab, Yuzah and Ahio, were, the sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart. Do you see that? And then at the end it says they brought the cart carrying the ark. See, the ark of God in the book of Numbers, God told Moses specifically how to transport this cart. The priests, and only the priests, were to put two, can you put the picture of the ark up again? Actually put the Indiana Jones one up. That one. Notice um, Indiana Jones and that guy, I don't know who he is, um, are carrying the ark. They're carrying on poles. This is how God prescribed it to be done. But now, as the scene opens up, it says something about a new cart. Now, I don't mean to be like weird here, or I don't mean to be like cliche, but this is like new tech, right? This is new technology. And they are looking at this going, no, 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 we don't, we don't need the, we don't need the um, priest to carry anymore. We got this new thing, it's called a cart. <laughs> it's so awesome. And um, it's like a startup we have, and like people funded it, and we had this thing built, and all, anyway. <laughs> And then, um, and then these, these like oxen, these cows are pulling this, and the priests are standing behind it like, this is so chill, way easier than that thing. Like, we don't have to hold it. Look at this, it's going, and the carts are going. That's what's happening. This is new, and this is very, very, very important, a new cart. They're, they're not doing what God had prescribed them to do. And the oxen stumbles. I don't know, he, he like runs over a rock or steps in a pothole, stumbles, and then Uzzah goes, okay, the oxen stumbled. It's probably gonna tip the cart. Let me grab the ark and stabilize it. Let me help God here. Stabilizes the cart, touches it, which he was prescribed that you're not to touch the ark, and God kills him on the spot. Now, Eugene Peterson, I, I read this like two years ago, and this never left my mind. This has been one of my favorite um, little little anecdotes of this story, a little quote from this story, a little insight in this story. He says this, Yuza is the patron saint of those who uncritically embrace technology without regard to the nature of the holy. Just, can you just put that somewhere, like close to you, and live with that for a minute? Just, just I mean, you might want to print it out and put it somewhere, but just sit with this for a second. Yuza this priest who was, who was, who like somehow brought the, got this new cart going is the patron saint of those who uncritically embrace technology without regard to the nature of the holy. Now this is pretty, um, probably potent and poignant here where we live, that we think that, and we do have this understanding, and this is what funds everything, that we can change the world through technology. And some of that is very, very, very true. But can we stop? Before, before we create, before we do anything, before we even adopt new technology into our lives, does it regard, does it regard, do we regard the nature of a holy God? Does it regard, does this technology regard the nature of me being made in the image of that God? If we are creating these things, do we know what it's, how it's shaping humanity, what it's really doing to people? Because people are made in God's image. And this world is bursting out with holiness. There's a holy God, and God has made us in his image. Now, you guys know, I mean, I'm, we're not against technology. We have a screen up here, and I'm sound, and I'm teaching from a, a tablet, 
That's not like, so obviously you have to like say, okay, you're saying get back to, what are you, what are you saying? I'm saying, do we adopt things, do we create things without regard to the nature of God's holiness? Like to stop, it should be part of our planning. As we're creating new things, let, let's stop. Let's give regard to the nature of who God is. Can we, can we pause and remember who God is here? And how is this shaping us? How is this shaping the world? This is what I'm saying. I mean, we, just, we can't just run, run headlong into all these new things like, because it's new, it's good. We have to stop, we, us. As we are working and creating, are we adding value into the good that God has made? What Yuza did not, what Yuza did was not an isolated event. It wasn't just a reflex made by someone who didn't want to lose his job as the cart boy or whatever. This has been reflected on upon by many who have studied and thought about this event. It seems that Yuza was in the business of managing God. Yuza was in the business of managing God. And it's the management of God that brings death. It was trying to keep God in his place. It's trying to um, strategically plan where God would be and what God would do. Here's how you can tell if, you're, if you've been trying to manage God. There's no fear of God in you anymore. You've cheapened the grace of God so much that you no longer believe in the burning holiness of God. That's how you know you've been trying to manage God. You've been trying to make God in your own image. God is completely other. You run or you continue to run headlong into sin because you did that sin two weeks ago and you didn't die or you didn't get a disease or you didn't get caught and you lose, we lose the, re- the reality of the holiness of God. We lose the reality that life is sacred and that people are sacred and the work that we do with our hands by God's power is sacred. All of life is pulsating with the presence of God and his holiness and how we can tell we've lost sight of that is there's no fear of God in us anymore. When we lose the reality of God's holiness, we make our aim effectiveness. We make our, 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 our aim, people become a means to an end. And more so than all of that, and more deadly than all of that, God becomes a means to an end. God is the way that we get our thing done. We, uh, when I go to God, then he gives me all the stuff I want. So when I go to God, he doesn't give me the relationship I want, and the life I want, and the job I want. God becomes a means to an end. So our prayers and our worship are really about us and about, about God blessing us. This is what it looks like to manage God. Use a managed God, or at least he tried to manage God. He tried to keep God in his place. He tried to effectively get God from point A to point B, and he died. But it was this destruction, it was this destruction here, if you read the story, it's this destruction here that brings clarity. It's good sometimes when God kills your little event. It's good when God disrupts your party or kills your great idea. Through this death, David was brought to his senses. Through Uzzah's death, David was brought, not not right away, of course. Right away, what happens? Uzzah dies, and David's like, come on. Like, he's angry. I'm I'm trying to do a good thing here. I'm trying to get the ark of God to Jerusalem. I'm trying to get it in in its proper place. David was mad, mad that God would kill his attempt at getting things right, mad that God's wrath was involved in a worship retreat. This is all the stuff, but this destruction eventually brought clarity. And that clarity came when someone reported that what happened to the house where the ark of God was left. 
in the house of Obed-Edom. It says in verse 12, Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. The ark of God pulls in to the house of Obed-Edom. He was probably a Philistine, a pagan, from Israel's standpoint. And God's blessing him. Ark is there, and the house of Obed-Edom is completely blessed. And, and, and so, what, what it seems, what, what's clear here is God's intent is never to destroy us. God's intent is never to kill us or destroy us. God's intent is always, always, always to bless us with his presence. That's the whole point. And the ark was proof of that. The ark was not given to Israel to destroy it. It was given to Israel to bless it with his presence. God doesn't give you gifts and talents and influence and intelligence and privilege to destroy you. God doesn't bring his presence into your life to destroy you. But sometimes the best thing he can do is destroy you. To destroy the way you do things, destroy the way you think is the best plan to get the presence of God somewhere or to get where you want to go or get things started, to get your plans off the ground. God, would you please bring to death our vain attempts to manage you in this church and in our lives? This is the best thing that's happened to David so far. David heard the ark of God was blessing the household of Obed-Edom and he wanted it back, so he returned to fundamentals. He returned to basics. He returned to the very, very, very first and simple things. He returned to worship and sacrifice. He's like, okay, let's go get it back, but this time, let's not, let's do things differently. Let's move this thing slowly. Let's move this thing Let's ditch this technology of carts and cows and go back to how God wants things to be, the prescribed way, priests using their hands and using their hearts to move the ark. Slow work. Priests grabbing it and with reverence and fear and love and ritual carrying the ark. Stopping and slowing down and saying, let's return to like fundamentals. Let's return to things simple as prayer and sacrifice and worship. And let's not bring in all this new stuff. Let's take this thing slow. I have to remind myself that technology and environment and systems and efficiency only go so far. I, I love them all. I love technology and I love creating great environments and I love some systems, not all systems. I love efficiency I love them all, but here's the thing. There is no substitute for the fear and awareness of God. There is no substitute for obedience. I love technology. I love efficiency. I love creating really great environments. But they are no substitute, nor can they ever be, and the fear and the awareness of God. They are no substitute for my obedience to God. Because I'm being effective and because all the numbers are, are falling into place does not mean that I've been obedient. There is no substitute for that. Sometimes God will destroy us and I hope that when we are not obedient and we don't have a fear and awareness that God would destroy us. But sometimes he, let, he lets us just go. I have no idea, idea why. And we get addicted we get addicted to our efficiency. We get addicted to our stuff. A while back, maybe uh, over, over a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, 
um, I found myself talking about God like he wasn't in the room. Have you ever done that? Like you're talking about God, but you don't talk about him like he's in, in, in the room. I found myself doing that. Treating God like he was a means to an end. Treating God like he was a way to win, a way to be effective. Our prayer lives can do this. We can pray for results. We extol prayer largely for its usefulness. Has anyone ever said, I prayed for this and it happened? What does it it make you want to do? Pray more. I prayed for this and it happened. I prayed for this and it happened. And then all of a sudden, without you knowing it, something triggers in your heart and prayer is a means to get what you want. We think if we're intimate with God, if we press in, if we pause and pray, if we hear God's voice, we will be more effective than ever. God taught me a couple years ago that the point of intimacy with God is intimacy with God. Not to get my thing done. Like, God, if I pray, will you make my sermon awesome? God, if I pray, will you bless the work of my hands? If I pray, and that became the thing. Now, that's not, those aren't bad things. When they come to the thing, and you're going to God for a means to an end, everything's perverted. See, Knowing God, worshiping God is an in and of itself. It's strange how our prayer and our worship lives can become carts. A way to get things done. And God needs to bring a death to our carts. Sometimes I wonder if the wood that David used for the sacrifice he made every six steps was the wood from the cart. Like, hey, cut that, cut that thing up and burn it. And let's offer it to God. There's no substitute for the fear and the awareness of God. And I pray that God would burn our carts, all the ways we try to please him without knowing him, all the ways we try to use him to be effective. Oswald Chambers, who's written probably one of the most famous devotionals of all time, My Utmost for His Highest, has an excerpt in one of his devotionals that goes like this. We slander God by our very eagerness to work for him without knowing him. I couldn't do this, but I wanted to put an emoji fist right after it. I couldn't figure it out on my computer. That's one of those. We slander God by our very eagerness to work for him without knowing him. I want to do this for God. I want to do that for God. And my business is going to be for God. And everything I do is going to be for God. And without knowing God, it's slandering God. When David finally gets it right, and he brings the ark in with singing and dancing, and offering, and worship, and obedience. There's another tragedy. There's another death in the story. McCall's wife, or David, McCall, David's wife. More important to the story, if you notice it, it was three times in the narrative. It says, McCall, Saul's daughter. McCall, Saul's daughter. McCall, Saul's daughter. Did you notice that? Mentioned three times, it's to point out that she's part of that old regime, that old order of things. Saul's household. Where keeping up appearances and image management are more important than humbling yourself before God. This is exactly what Saul did. He wasn't repentant. He was just about keeping appearances. And when he sinned, he asked the prophet Samuel, just sacrifice for me. Come on, just do something. Make this right. I don't want to. It was all image management. It wasn't heart repentance. What you get in David when he sins is this heart repentance. It's me. It's me. And he, and he fasts and he mourns and he prays and he repents before God. It's that heart McCall's like part of Saul's 
order of thing of just keeping up appearances. Yes, I show up for church, and I show up for community group, and I show up and I just try to keep the appearances up. But inwardly I'm dying. Inwardly I'm, my life is so full of chaos and sin and disruption and my heart is so wayward and gone. And instead of just coming before God and before his people and saying, I'm really messed up. Like deep, deep down I'm messed up. We try to keep up appearances. She runs out, McCall, and yells at David for dancing half naked in front of the slave girls. Basically putting himself on their level is what she was mad at. Like you're going to dance in front of the slave girls in like your undergarments? Like you're lowering yourself to their level. And David answered by saying that the slave girls were not the audience. Did you see that? He said um, in verse 21, it was before the Lord. She goes, I can't believe that you're dancing in front of the slave girls like that. And he's like, I wasn't dancing in front of the slave girls like that. they They were not my audience. God was my audience. He was the one I was standing before. God was. He, I was dancing for the audience of God. What this means is that David didn't see himself as Israel's king in that moment. Israel's leader. He, what he saw himself as was the servant of the most high God. And servants humble themselves before their king. And David, the king of Israel, was saying, the king is God. And I will humble myself and I will even become more undignified. This You haven't seen anything yet. If you think this was shameful, I, won't, I, don't, I will shame myself and humble myself before this God. I will be humiliated in my own eyes before God. N.T. Wright gives a great definition in his book on worship. He said, worship is humble and glad. Worship forgets itself in remembering God. Worship celebrates the truth as God's truth, not its own. True worship doesn't put, a show or make a, put on a show or make a fuss. True worship isn't forced, isn't half-hearted, doesn't keep looking at its watch, doesn't worry about the person in the next pew, what the, in the person in the next pew may be doing. True worship is open to God, adoring God, waiting for God, trusting God, even in the dark. There are three main characters in this story. Yuza, McCall, and David. Yuza does not worship God, really. He he, he fussily tries to manage religious business. Yuza worships effectiveness. He doesn't worship God. He's, he's in the environment of people worshiping God, but he himself doesn't worship God. He worships effectiveness. He, he tries to manage religious business. So he's in the back when everyone's worshiping, making sure everything is right. He's trying to manage everything. McCall is the second person in the story. She does not worship God either. She critically observes she worships self-image. She stands in the back and goes, that's not how you do it. That's not how you're supposed to do it. That's not how you're supposed to worship God. I can't believe you're doing that. Oh my gosh, you look so, and she's worshiping self-image or the image of her house because she was David's uh, wife. And then we have David. David responds to God's revelation. David responds to God's beauty and true worship and loses himself before God. Abandons himself in the sight of God. See, every single one of us worships something. All of us. If you're a follower of Jesus, here or not, you worship something. I read this about, I don't know, five months ago, four months ago now, but I should read it like three times a year because it's so good. David Foster Wallace, a secular American novelist, not a Christian from what I understand, 
said there's actually no such thing as atheism. No such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship, is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing is thing to worship is that pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you, you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when, that time and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified in myths and proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in our daily consciousness. Worship power, you will in the end end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. This, this last issue of San Francisco Magazine is their love and sex issue. I would show the cover, but it's quite graphic, so I won't. Um, and in there, they're pretty explicit that San Francisco worships sex. Like, just explicit. Like, what's well, one thing I love about San Francisco? It's spiritual, and they call it like it is. Like, yes, we worship sex. What? They even in, the art, in, in these articles talk about sex as being idols. There are sex idols. And some of the articles leak the truth, some of them, that it's lonely serving the God of sex in San Francisco. Because sex is just, is not the thing. Sex is just a signpost pointing to a deeper need of communion with God. I can start a sex talk right now, but I won't. Here's the truth. That, this is a truth that not many people will tell you, that SF Magazine won't tell you. It leaks it, like you can get hints of it. It's haunted by it, but they won't say it. The truth is this. The things we worship will destroy us, like David Foster Wallace said. The things we worship will destroy us. Sex will destroy us. Our careers can destroy us. Beauty can destroy us. Self-expression can destroy us. These things destroy us. We worship them and give our lives to them, and they destroy us. Why? Because they don't love you. Jesus is the only person, the only thing that we can worship that will not destroy us because he loves us. He's the only one worthy of our worship because he will not destroy us. He will actually save us because he loves us. Those other things don't love you. Jesus is the love of God revealed to us. The love of God made manifest to us. All these things, the ark, the tabernacle, the temple, Jerusalem, every single thing in it point toward, forward to Jesus. The incarnate God who's made God known to us. The love of God revealed to us. St. Augustine, early church fathers. Um, gosh, I love, I'm, I'm finding a, a, just a sincere, deep love of uh, early church fathers. They have all the same wrestlings that we do, all of them. St. Augustine was no different. Love, love, love pleasure. He's actually famous for saying in his confessions, Lord, give me chastity, just not yet. <laughs> he had desires, he had passions when he was young. And he met the living God in a real way. And then his book, Confessions, is like a story of him falling in love with God. And one of the most beautiful ones, one of the most beautiful 
sections of confessions because he went after all these things in his life and none of them satisfied him. All these idols, he calls them shapely things. All of them. And he got them and they never fulfilled them. And he finds Jesus and he says in confessions, and I want just to slowly read this and let, us, let this draw us into worship. Late have I loved you. Beauty so ancient and so new. Late have I loved you. Lo, you are within, but I outside seeking there for you. And upon the shapely things you have made, I rushed headlong. I misshapen. You were with me, but I was not with you. They held me back far from you. Those things which would have no being were they not in you. You called, shouted, broke through my deafness. You flared, blazed, banished my blindness. You lavished your fragrance. I gasped. And now I pant for you. I tasted you, and I hunger and thirst. You touched me, and I burned for your peace. Let's pray. Lord, I I know that there are people that are in this room that you have been near, though they have not been near you those that you've loved and you want to lavish your love on, I pray that you would break through. I pray that you would break through, that your love would break through and be shown for the reality that it is. And then all the vain pursuits of things that we worship, sex and status and power and career, all the things that we go after and worship with all of our being would be shown as a farce, as false as dead, as nothing. And I ask God that you would make your love known and that we would rightly respond to your love, God, through genuine worship. Not trying to manage you, not standing afar off critically. I pray that every human soul would enter into that divine dance with you like David did. A worship that's pure, and simple, and right, and true. And God, I pray for this church that you would keep us from embracing new vision, new technology, new ways of effectiveness without regard to your holiness, God. Keep our leadership from that. Keep our church from that. And I pray that we would, as a church, worship you in spirit and in truth. You, Lord, are worthy of our worship. And by worshiping you, Lord, you deliver us. You save us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Well, church, I, I want to just ask you to pause before you move into this next time. Um, I feel like there's a very clear direction from the Lord that um, we are to remember what we are about to do. And we are to regard it as holy. I know that, that I and all of us can easily move in the routine of our Sundays 
into a posture like Uzzah, where this is just systematic, where we get up and we worship and then we, we take communion and then we sit down and we worship and we go to lunch. And I just deeply sense God asking us, inviting us to slow down. To remember who he is.